0: Our epistle lesson and sermon text is from Romans 8. I'm going to read verses 5 to 11 and preach on verses 5 and 6. Listen to God's infallible word. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, The body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give to your mortal bodies through his spirit. I'm sorry, give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Thus far the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask for his blessing on the reading and preaching and hearing of his word. Father, we do come to you in need of your help and also claiming and knowing the promise that you help your people to navigate your word, to understand it. You give us insight into what you have written. And so as we study, as we dig into this text, give illumination to our hearts and our minds so that we believe what you say and then go from here as doers of your word and not hearers only. And so may your spirit be among us and in each one of us, moving us toward the true knowledge of God, knowledge of you. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. It's really good to see those of you who are visiting. I see some visitors in each of the three sections, and I want to personally invite you to stay with us after church. Right after the service, there'll be a time of prayer and announcements here, and then we go over to the fellowship hall for a meal, and you're invited to stay and eat with us and let us get to know you, especially those of you who are visiting for the first time. Also, before I launch into the sermon, I want to remind you all where we're going in the sermon series. I, I said two weeks ago that after I finish Romans 8, we're going to go to Job, and we're, that's what we're going to do. And uh, Some of you thought, oh, so Job is, th- is coming up this week. No, it's after we get to the very end of Romans 8, so there will be several sermons in Romans 8 before we get to Job, but I am looking forward to going all the way through the book of Job. At a, faster pace than we're going through Romans, but we're going to go through it all and just kind of linger in the details of that book and let what the author's doing have its effect on us. It's a long book for a reason, and I don't want to just do a two or five sermon overview. I think we'll miss the point. Well, today's sermon has two titles, one that made it into the bulletin and As you you know me, oftentimes I change it uh, by the time I do the handout later in the week. So you have two to go with. But the one I want you to focus on is the one that's on your handout that you should have gotten with the bulletin. If you didn't, you can make your way back there. It might be helpful to have the handout today. But the title is, There Are Only Two Kinds of People. There aren't three kinds of people or four or five. There are two categories, two classes of humans. Everyone is in one of the two categories, and everyone is all the way in one class or the other. You can't have one foot in one category and the other foot in, another, in the other category. Both of your feet are in whichever category you're in, whether you believe that, or think that, or would like to think that, or not. You can't straddle the fence. You can only be on one side of that fence. Paul describes the two classes of people in verses 5 to 11 of Romans 8. If we just simplified it, we could say quickly that the two kinds of human beings are unbelievers and believers. But to use his language, the two kinds of people are those who are According to the flesh and those who are according to the spirit. Those whose minds are set on the things of the flesh and those whose minds are set on the things of the spirit. Those who are headed toward eternal death and those who are headed toward eternal life. With God, those who have the spirit and those who don't. Those who belong to Christ because they have the Spirit and those who don't. Those are, that's terminology straight from the passage I just read. Now, why do I point that out? There's a popular theology that gained prominence in the 20th century. It's been around in various forms forever. It, it says that there are three classes of people. Not two kinds, but three. The three supposed categories are, un, number one, unbelievers. Number two, believers who have their minds set on the things of the spirit. And number three, believers who have their minds set on the things of the flesh. This third category is sometimes referred to as carnal Christians, carnal Christianity. Have you ever heard that term? The word carnal means fleshly, according to the flesh, and so a carnal Christian is someone in the flesh. And, and Paul uses that term flesh in a lot of different ways in his writings. But it, it basically refers to the, the sinful nature or the things of this world, things that are not eternal. But it has to do with our fallen thought processes And thoughts, our sinful desires, and our merely earthly and worldly attitudes and thoughts and plans. And so a a carnal Christian is someone in the flesh rather than in the Spirit, in the Holy Spirit. Someone who lives no differently, really, than the world does because he's still in bondage to sin. And so there have been countless books and articles and sermons about this supposed third category of carnal Christian. Many pastors and Bible teachers have tried to explain how it's possible, possible to be a genuine believer without experiencing any kind of freedom from sin. And we're not talking about sinlessness. No one is sinless, but genuine freedom from sin. How it's possible to be a, a, a real Christian and still be in bondage to the flesh. And according to this view, Paul, Paul, according to that theology, Paul isn't talking about believers and unbelievers, two categories here in verses 5 to 11. Instead, they say, they, they use this passage to say that he's, he's talking here about obedient Christians and disobedient Christians, victorious Christians and defeated Christians, spiritually minded Christians and carnally minded Christians, Christians who please God because they're growing in holiness by the grace of God, because the spirit is working holiness into them. And Christians who do not please God, who are not growing in grace and godliness and in the holiness without which no one will see God, Hebrews 12 says. Now, this novel approach to Paul's teaching is as spiritually destructive as it is Theologically misguided, wrong. Paul knows nothing of carnal Christianity. Now, we saw in Romans 7, he knows quite well at a very personal level what it means to be a Christian who still struggles with sin, who still does what he doesn't want to do and doesn't do what he desires to do. We're not talking about that, the struggle with sin that's ongoing until we die. But he knows nothing of a carnal Christian who is walking in the flesh rather than truly in the spirit. He only knows two kinds of people and one kind of Christian. In today's text, he's describing the two classes of humans. There are unbelievers who are, are according to the flesh, and there are believers who are, According to the Spirit. Now, you may have noticed in that last sentence that I emphasized a word, the word are. Unbelievers are according to the flesh, believers are according to the Spirit. Now, I emphasize that word are because Paul uses it, and it's an important, very important word in this text. He uses it purposefully, and it's significant. And so I invite you to look with me at verse 5. I hope you have your Bibles open, but I want you to look in the handout right now, in in the translation there, in my translation. It says, For those who are according to the flesh have their minds set on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit have their minds set on the things of the Spirit. Now, this is one of those places where I think we have to to disagree with many of the of the English translations. Uh, instead of using the word "are," they translate it as "live," and, and it, understandably because it it it's if possible you don't always like to have a you know a, a stronger verb, not just a verb of being that connects to ideas, but let's let's put a verb in there that has some substance but the word live is not in the text and the word are is in the text and so for example the new king james version says for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh but those who live according to the spirit the things of the spirit that's that's obviously true the ESV, niv other translations do the same But the NASB, the New American Standard Bible, is one of the translations that gets it right. And it says, For those who are, not live, those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. So what's the difference? Why does this matter? What's the big deal? Is there a big deal? Well, the big deal is is we miss Paul's argument if we, if we translate this wrong. The big deal is that in verse 5, Paul is explaining why some people walk according to the flesh and why, underneath it all, some people walk according to the Spirit. He's, he's answering the why question. Now, do you remember the, the phrase that Paul used twice up in verses 1 to 4? It's been a few weeks. I put it on your handout so you can look up there. At the top of your handout, you can see the phrase that I'm talking about at the end of verse 1 and then again at the end of verse 4. You can also see it at the end of verse 4 in your, in your Bible. Paul's point in 1-4 to four was that those whom God justifies by faith alone, he also sanctifies. Always. They always go together justification and sanctification you don't have justification without sanctification obviously don't have sanctification without first being right with God but you can't you don't get right with God and then fail to grow it means you actually never became right with God you never were saved you never were justified and so Paul in one through four he he's putting these things together those whom God justifies he sanctifies when God saves people from sin's penalty, he doesn't leave them in bondage to sin's power. He frees them so they can walk in the newness of life. And so if we ask the question, who is no longer under God's condemnation? One perfectly theologically accurate answer would be those who trust in Jesus, those who have faith. It's faith alone, right? That's a a correct answer. But actually, the answer Paul gives in at the beginning of Romans 8 is he who walks not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Not because walking according to the spirit earns you favor with God or is the, 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 the mechanism that God uses to justify you like he sees that you're walking with him and then he justifies you. No, it's by faith alone. But Paul is talking about the fruit here. And so you, you want to know who, who's no longer under condemnation? He who walks not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit, because that's what's going to happen to people who are truly saved. And now in verse 5, Paul's explaining why it works that way. He's, he's explaining how it works underneath it all, inside, in the invisible realm. Why do unbelievers walk according to the flesh? Why? Because in their nature, at the core of their being, they are according to the flesh. Why do believers walk according to the Spirit? Because in their nature, at the core of their being, they are According to the spirit, every human's behavior is determined by his or her nature. So in verse five, Paul's distinguishing between the two different natures. The first point on your outline, there are only two natures because there are only two types of people. Either your nature is according to the flesh, in which case you'll be walking according to the flesh, or your nature is according to the spirit, in which case you'll be walking according to the spirit. Paul's point here is that your nature determines your behavior, and Paul didn't make this doctrine up. Jesus teaches the same thing in the Gospels. In Matthew 7, he says, Every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot. Bear good fruit. That cannot language is, what is the same language Paul uses later in, the, in this paragraph that I read that we're going to cover next week. Cannot bear good fruit if it's bad. Cannot bear bad fruit if it's good. Thus, by their fruit you will recognize them. He says a similar thing in Matthew 12 and Luke 6. Make a tree good and its fruit will be good. Or make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad. For a tree is recognized by its fruit. The mouth speaks what the heart is full of. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him. And an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. So it comes from the storehouse, which is your nature, who you are. Every human being comes into the world as a bad tree, to use our Lord's illustration here. Example, we all come into the world, we're all when we're conceived in our mother's womb, we are a bad tree. Every single person, except for Jesus, every human being, we are by nature bad. We're we're not by nature children of God. We're not by nature thinking about the things of the spirit or headed toward the good place. We are by nature children of wrath, children of deserved wrath, God's wrath. At conception, we inherit Adam's guilt and Adam's corrupt nature, and we act accordingly as soon as we can. Unless God intervenes, unless he turns you into a good tree, gives you a new nature, you'll only ever be able to produce bad fruit. You'll only ever be able to walk in the flesh and set your mind on the things of the flesh, because you are in the flesh. You are God. To the flesh when God has turned you into a good tree this means he's given you his spirit and he's given you a new nature a new heart as Ezekiel puts it and out of the storehouse of this new heart you're able to bring good things as Jesus put it you're able to walk in the spirit not perfectly in this life but faithfully you're able to set your mind truly on the things of the spirit Which brings us to the second point. The two different natures determine the two different mindsets. That's the the word Paul uses. According to verse 5, if your nature is according to the flesh, then your mind will be set on the things of the flesh. If your nature is according to the Spirit, then your mind will be set on the things of the Spirit. Now, What's all this language mean though? What's it mean to have your mind set on the things of the flesh? What's what's packed into that term? It means to be absorbed with fleshly things and concerns. To have your mind sharply focused on things that are tied to your mortal life on this earth. It means to be riveted on worldly concerns and earthly pursuits. A person's mindset includes his affections, his emotions, his longings, his ambitions, all the things in life that he's searching for and working for and thinking about, the things he's turning over in his mind, the things that grip his mind. It includes his interests and his obsessions. It includes his loves and his hates. When Paul refers to the things of the flesh, he's not only thinking about you know, the, the big sins as we think of them or my, the, the sins of sexual immorality and murder and drunkenness and envy and anger and all the other, quote, deeds of the flesh, end quote, that are listed in Galatians 5 and other places. Those things are certainly included, We might even be right to start there. So those things are included in the things of the flesh. But this phrase involves much more. Again, going back to that word flesh, the word flesh has reference to, at some level, really every time Paul uses it, to our mortality, our mortal bodies, this body of death, as he called it, our dead bodies, which are still full of sin, full of this worldliness. And so it involves more than just these particularly outward or um, flagrant sins. A person may be a respectable member of society and a faithful member of a local church and yet have his mind on the things of the flesh. A fleshly-minded person is someone whose thoughts, cares, interests, and aims are confined to this present world. There's a ceiling on them, and they never escape the earth. It it, it doesn't always involve outward or blatant immorality. It could be a philosopher who exalts reason more than God. It could be a poet who revels in vivid language and bright visions, but finds no joy in God. It could be a patriot who loves his fatherland, but never thinks of his heavenly father. It could be a lawmaker who doesn't submit to God's law. It could be a mother who only seeks earthly blessings for her child. It could be a musician who doesn't acknowledge God or thank God for the gifts of music and hearing. It could be an athlete who wants his own glory rather than God's. It could be a working man whose days are filled with thoughts of everything but God. It could be a retired man who is so consumed with leisure and hobbies and personal projects that his mind has no space for spiritual thoughts. He has no time to be spiritually minded. To have your mind on the things of the flesh means to have your mind on earthly things rather than heavenly things. To use another two categories that Paul uses. It means to have yourself at the center rather than God at the center. It means to serve your fleshly desires rather than the spirit's desires. And sometimes fleshly desires can look and seem quite acceptable and even respectable. The fleshly or carnal person may be outwardly moral, but inwardly his mind is only and always trying to figure out how to achieve his own ends, his own glory, his own gain, his own comfort, his own agenda, his own plans, his own desires. His mind never transcends this world. It never ascends any higher than the things of this world. And so he never gets around to thinking about God or aiming for God's glory in his life. His vision is bounded by the things of time and space and the five senses, by things that will pass away. There's no heavenly aspiration because his mind isn't captivated by heaven. What's it mean to have your mind set on the things of the Spirit? Well, for starters, it's, it's just the opposite of fleshly mindedness, the opposite of what we just considered. The, the spiritually minded are those who, who, whose thoughts and, and cares and interests and aims transcend the present world because they are fixed on the eternal things of the Spirit. Have, having your mind set on the things of the Spirit doesn't mean walking around with your head in the clouds uh, or or sitting around only thinking about religion and technical theology or something like that all all day long. It doesn't mean joining a monastery or doing something extravagant and different. No, the, the things of the spirit refer to the thoughts, cares, interests, and aims of the spirit. To set your mind on the things of the Spirit means to be preoccupied by the things that preoccupy the Holy Spirit. It means to relate all of life to God. Every aspect of your life to God. To relate every square inch of your mind and your heart and your body and your actions, your resources and your time to relate it to and devote it to God and to submit all of life to his word. It means that worship of God, communion with God, and obedience to God occupy your time as well as your heart and your mind and your body. It, it means, maybe, maybe above all, it means that your mind is preoccupied by the riches That are in Christ Jesus given to you by his spirit. Occupied by the great salvation that God has accomplished for you in Christ. And that you experience as you walk in his spirit. That's what Paul says at the beginning of Colossians 3. Where he talks about a very similar idea. He writes writes something similar there. You can write it down. It's Colossians 3, 1-4. Let me read it to you. So if you have been raised with Christ. Seek the things that. Above, the things that are above. He's not thinking spatially, literally above, but higher things, spiritual things. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. In other words, set your mind on heaven, on Christ. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, he says. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, when he comes back, then you also will appear with him in glory. And so be thinking about that glory and that grace that is true even now. Where where are you? Well, fundamentally, you are with Christ in the heavenly places, Paul says. And so seek those things that are above. Have your mind on the things that have to do with where you really are if you're in Christ. And so so we really need to ask ourselves routinely, And I'll ask you, as your pastor, are you preoccupied with what preoccupies God? Are your time and your mind filled with the things that matter in the world to come? Are you storing up for yourselves treasures in heaven? Everyone's mind is set on one of two things, either on fleshly pursuits or spiritual pursuits. It really is that simple, either on earthly goals or heavenly goals, either on things that will burn up or on things that will last forever. Your mind is fixed or fixated, set on, sharply focused on one of those two things. And whatever preoccupies your mind will control your whole life. Whatever grips your mind also has a grip on. On your entire being. At the heart of everything in your life is how you think. You ever thought about that? What you think about, how much you think about it, and what you don't think about, indicate who you are. Those are indicators of who you are. Your your mind isn't neutral. There's no such thing as, as neutral mindsets, neutral thinking. And your, your mind doesn't have, your mindset doesn't have a turn-off switch. You're always aiming at something, always setting your mind on something, always focused on something, always fixated on something. The only question is, what is it? What is it that gets you up in the morning? What are the objects of your thoughts of your mindset, what is your mindset on? What are you preoccupied with? What are the eyes of your mind gazing at day in and day out? Now, the significance of that word mindset in this passage can hardly be overstated. One scholar put it this way. This passage makes it abundantly clear that the way one thinks is intimately related to the way one lives, whether in Christ, in the spirit, and by faith, or alternatively in the flesh, in sin, and in spiritual death. A man's thinking and striving cannot be seen in isolation from the overall direction of his life. You can't separate, he says, your thinking and your striving from your direction. They'll go together every time. The way you live is rooted in the way you think. The way you, you Your life follows your mind. Spiritual battles are won or lost in the mind. Your Christian life is the outworking of your thought life. If you're not a Christian, your life in the flesh is also the outworking of your thought life. Now, a few minutes ago, I read... From Colossians 3, the first four verses. And there, and I and I noted the similarity. There, Paul commands believers to set their minds, to set our minds on things above, to be spiritually minded, to think about the things of the Spirit. It's all the same idea. But here in Romans 8, there is a difference. Paul does something just a little different. There's no command here. He simply describes Christians as those who "...who set their minds on spiritual things." This is descriptive. So Colossians 3 is an imperative command. Romans 8 in this part is descriptive. It's what believers do on the basis of who they are. They are according to the Spirit. Therefore, their minds are set on on and filled with and preoccupied by the things of the Spirit." Part of what it means to to meditate on this passage faithfully, to really sink our teeth into it and to get it into our bones, is to ask ourselves, to ask yourself, does this describe me? So this is a descriptive passage of Christians. It's not, not so much a command, it implies a command, but it's not a command like Colossians 3, it's descriptive. Does it describe me? Does it describe you? Is my mindset fleshly or spiritual? Where's my thought life headed? Where does my thought life often take me? What's my mind preoccupied with? Is it set on worldly matters or eternal things? We, We can boil those questions down to one question. Is my mind in the habit of taking me towards self and sin or toward Christ and his spirit? Churchgoer, does your mind know how to take you away from the things of the flesh and toward the things of the spirit? Is that what's going on? Your mindset is indicative of your nature. It expresses your basic nature as a Christian or as a non-Christian. The preoccupation of your mind indicates whether you are according to the spirit or are according to the flesh. It reveals your nature just as a tree's Fruit reveals whether it's good or bad. But it indicates something else as well. Your mindset, your mental preoccupation, the thing that the, the, the teeth of your mind sink themselves into, that is also indicative of your destiny. Not just indicative of your nature, that's working itself out. It's also indicative of your destiny, which brings us to the third point. We've seen that the two different categories of people have two different natures, which produce two different mindsets. And now we'll see in verse six that these two different groups have two different destinies. One is headed toward eternal death, the other toward eternal life and peace. And the mindset of the flesh is death, Paul says. But the mindset of the spirit is life and peace. Paul's talking about death and life in the fullest sense, in the fullest eschatological sense. In other words, in Romans, death and life don't merely refer to spiritual death and spiritual life in this world. Their focus is is on death and life in the world to come. That's what I meant by eschatological, in in eternity. For for example, when Paul said back in chapter 6, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life, the wages and the gift in that verse that he's talking about there are eternal wages and eternal gift, eternal death and eternal life. And the same is true here in verse 6 of chapter 8 that the scary reality of this verse, the, the sobering reality of this verse, is that if those who are according to the flesh don't repent and turn to Christ before they die, they will continue in this miserable condition of separation from God throughout all eternity. It will never end. The book of Revelation calls this The second death. So, what Paul calls death in this passage, the book of Revelation calls it the second death. Okay, so we're going to die once when our bodies stop working, our breath is gone. But Revelation 20 talks about the second death, which will be experienced forever in the lake of fire. At the end of Revelation 20, John describes his vision of the very end. God gives him a vision at the very end, and, and he puts what he sees this way. This is the second death, the lake of fire. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So John sees this. Now, some theologians throughout the ages have tried to argue that unbelievers will be annihilated in hell, and so they will cease to exist. God will destroy them completely so that they are no more. But there is no indication in Scripture that this is the case. It's very hard to get to that doctrine. It's, wish, it's wishful thinking, and it's not loving people when we we're not loving people when we tell them this: eternal death is eternal conscious torment in the lake of fire. That's what Paul, that's what Paul's talking about in this word death. That's what if we unpack this word death. We can go to Revelation for one place that unpacks it. And this fire awaits those who are according to the flesh unless they forsake their sin. This death awaits those who have the mindset of the flesh unless they turn to Christ with living faith. But if you've been born again, if you are truly a child of God, if you are according to the spirit, you've been given Life that is eternal and imperishable. Life that can't be taken away from you. Life that cannot be destroyed. It's indestructible. You've also been given eternal peace with God because your sins have been paid for by Christ on the cross in his blood. A little bit earlier in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, Paul says, Therefore, since we have been declared righteous by faith... We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace with God. Now, th- now, that peace isn't the peace that, it's not the peace that passes all understanding in Philippians 4 7. In that verse, Paul's talking about the inner peace of God. The inner peace of God is a subjective reality, a personal reality. It's something we feel, we can say. But the peace. Paul speaks of in Romans 5 1 and here in chapter 8 verse 6 is objective peace with God. So there's a difference between the peace of God and, the, and peace with God. It's the peace that believers have because their sins are no longer counted against them. God is no longer at war with them. He's made peace with them through the blood of Jesus. Now those who are at peace with God We're not always at peace with God. You don't come into the world at peace with God. Everyone comes into existence. Everyone enters the world at war, at enmity with God. And Paul's going to go on to say in verse 7, as we'll see next time, he's going to talk about the unbelievers' hostility toward God. You can see it there on your handout in verse 7. Before we had peace with God, we were hostile toward God. and, And just... To be blunt he was he was hostile toward us because he takes sin seriously. he's a God of love, but he is also a God who is angry with uh, uh, and, and wrathful against sin. His anger and wrath weighed heavy on us on account of our guilt and our sin. But the good news for you, if you are according to the spirit, if if you have your mind set on the things of the spirit if your mindset is of the spirit the good news for you is that god has made peace with you through the blood of his son's cross so what's the what's our response to all this how, how should you respond to this text today's sermon has been a, a heavy on doctrine so what's the exhortation what's what, what are the takeaways What are you to do in light of Paul's teaching on the two kinds of people and their two different natures, their two different mindsets, and their two different destinies? I'll leave you with three exhortations. First, examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith, to see whether you are according to the Spirit. And I'll remind you that Paul says, to do, tells, says there's a time to do that in 2 Corinthians 13. Test yourself to see whether your mind is set on the things of the Spirit. You, you might need to ask yourself whether you've bought into that lie that there's such a thing as a carnal Christian, a believer who walks according to the flesh, a child of God who has, set, who, who has his mind set on the things of the flesh a Christian who really doesn't look any different from the world. Second, if you find that your life is centered on things that are not eternal, on things that will pass away, if your mind is set on self and sin, on earthly pursuits instead of on God, then repent and run to Jesus. Jesus. Don't rest until your mind is sharply focused on the things of Christ and his spirit. Finally, if you're a believer, your third response to Paul's teaching should be to confirm your calling and your election. With all diligence, Peter says. Remember Peter's exhortation in 2 Peter chapter 1. Make every effort to confirm your calling and election, because if you do these things, you will never stumble. What are these things? Okay. If, you, you know, if you do these things, he says, well, what are the, these things that he's talking about that he wants us to do? Well, he lists them in the previous verses. And what he lists there are the things of the Spirit. It's not a comprehensive list of the things of the Spirit But it is a list of the things of the Spirit. So in closing, I'm going to back up in that passage in 2 Peter 1. I'm going to start in verse 5 and read through verse 11. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with goodness. Goodness with knowledge. Knowledge with self-control. Self-control with endurance. Endurance with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being useless or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. The person who lacks these things is blind and short-sighted and has forgotten the cleansing from his past sins. Therefore, brethren, make every effort to confirm your calling and election, because if you do these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, entry into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be richly provided for you. Let's pray. God, we ask you to help us to stay in the way of eternal life to stay on the narrow path that leads to life we know that is that it is your grace and your grace alone that has put us in that way that has put us on that path that has given us a new nature and grace alone that keeps us thinking about the things of the spirit having our minds set on the things of the spirit and so Help us to do what you require of us, and Lord, turn any heart in this sanctuary to you that is not already turned toward you. Give new life where there is no life. And in all of us, draw us nearer to you so that we might grow in the grace and the godliness that is ours in Christ Jesus and given to us by his spirit. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.